all of you who were here crunched in. That's wonderful. That means that this is the kind of introduction where I can say this needs no introduction. Uh, nevertheless, I'm going to say a few words. I'm Sherry Kerbel, and I'm delighted, delighted to welcome so many friends and new friends to uh, this uh, really very special event for all of us. Um, and I'm speaking here on behalf of the comparative. A lot of people really want Lucy to come. A lot of people are participating uh, on behalf of the comparative media studies and writing colloquia, the anthropology department, the history faculty, the SDS program. I'm welcoming you to a very special program. And of course, if everything goes well, I want to thank Gus Zahariadis in uh, SDS because he's the one who really made all of the details uh, happen and made them together. Uh, so it's my very great pleasure. Uh, my role today will be as producer and moderator uh, of our time. And I'm going to introduce Lucy Suchman and our uh, discussant, Stefan Helmreich. Lucy will be presenting a paper. Uh, Stefan will be commenting. I'm going to give them some time to engage with each other. They'll both be up here. Uh, and then we'll open discussion um, to general questions up the floor. So let me just start by saying a few words about each of them, and I'll be very brief because they are very well known to the world and to you. Please be louder. Louder? Okay, I'm sorry. I said welcome. Lucy <laughs> <laughs> uh, is a professor of anthropology of science and technology in the Department of Sociology at Lancaster University. And I first met Lucy when we were pups. Um, when we were both at the beginning of our careers, and I was blown away, as so many of us were, at her fastidious work describing the actual behavior of people with technologies of many sorts. Today, this doesn't seem uh, revolutionary. At the time, uh, this was revolutionary. So whether she's describing someone as Xerox machine or interacting with a joystick or a robot, Lucy pushes aside the rhetoric of what the inventor of these devices said, what people will do with them, and actually observes what people do with them, and then talks with these people about their understanding of what has just happened. And this turns out, as you all know, to be a very different kind of story altogether. And it's been that impulse, that impulse, to tell a different narrative from the tale that technologists told that is the great through line of Lucy Suchman's career, her distinguished career. She founded a research tradition in her classic book, Plans and Situated Action, now we issued a seminal work in how minds, bodies, and machines work together. She developed a feminist practice of technology studies. And as she puts it, her own review, her, her, her overview of her research, a critical engagement with computer-human interaction now extended to contemporary warfighting. That's uh, Lucy's subject tonight, a window onto her new work on war, bodies, remoteness, who's implicated, and with what moral implications. Lucy, of course, is an active citizen academic community, in our academic community, a two-time president of 4S, a collaborating editor of the Journal of Social Studies and Science, the winner of the Bernal Prize from 4S for her distinguished contribution to the field. 
couldn't be more deserved because our speaker this afternoon has simply been one of the people who has defined the field. Now, it's unusual to be able to put Lucy on a stage with a peer. And I'm very proud, and it's very, it's very wonderful for MIT to, in fact, have a peer to put on the stage with Lucy. And this is what we've been able to do with Stephen Helmreich, program head at Elton E. Morrison, professor of anthropology at MIT. I met Stefan at an early artificial life conference in 1993, where my new fancy micro cassette tape recorder had just run out of juice. And with Stefan's expert consultation at a local radio shack, I think I bought a new tape recorder, something basic, a 1970s style large cassette player that I actually knew how to operate so I could get through the end of the rest of the conference. Now, I've recently consulted Stefan on another question where my field notes about one of our encounters were unclear, and he had crystalline notes that cleared it all up. So later we can check on the exact details of this Radio Shack afternoon, but what was most important to me about that day is that our theoretical conversation over battery choice clued me in right away to the fact that artificial life had found its ideal ethnographer, and indeed it was with his book on A-Life, Silicon Second Nature, Culturing, Art Culturing Artificial Life in a Digital World, that Stefan first demonstrated his stunning gifts that blend theory and observation. He's gone on to do that in other works, about the sea, alien ocean, on sound, and now forthcoming on waves. His most recent collection of essays, Sounding the Limits of Life, Essays in the Anthropology, Biology, and Beyond, won the Michelle Kendrick Book Prize from the Society for Literature, Science, and the Arts. And that I find very moving and richly deserved, because one of the hallmarks of Stefan's work is his true elegance. He's the rare social science writer, I find, but when I turn to the last page, I'm really sorry. <laughs> and for me, what he most shares with Lucy is that same quality, is that you read him or listen to him, and you come away with something truly new. So for Lucy um, and Stefan, uh, Lucy will each present, and then I'm going to give them a bit of time to kind of talk amongst themselves, and then I'm just going to open it out to a larger conversation. This is part of the CMS podcast series, so if you don't want to be part of the podcast, listen to the conversation um, quietly. Um, and of course, that will start, the audience participation will start uh, with questions from you, but I can see from looking out at the audience that both in our presenters and in the audience, um, I know that we have many distinguished minds here so I know that we can have a lot of back and forth and cross-talk, so I'm hoping that this feels as much as possible like a conversation in its whole. So with that, Lucy. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm very, very sorry that you are so crowded. And I want to, there's a couple of chairs down here. 
Um, and I want to invite people to come and sit down here on the floor and try to make yourselves as comfortable as possible. Um, <clears throat> and also, I will try to, I'm just going to get myself set up right here. Yes, so I will also try to project, um, but be sure to wave at me um, if you're having any trouble hearing. So my, start, my starting point um, for this talk are two interrelated developments in what I'll call the technopolitics of US militarism. The first is the extensive evidence for the fallacy of claims for precision and accuracy in the United States counterterrorism program, particularly as that involves expanding aerial surveillance in support of operations of targeted killing. And you'll see that I've specified my title a bit more uh, than it was advertised, and I'll say more about that shortly. The second development is growing investment in the further automation of these same operations, as exemplified in the form of the US Department of Defense Algorithmic Warfare Cross-Functional Team, or Project MAVEN. Looking at these developments through the lens of science and technology studies, I'll argue that the promotion of automated data analysis under the sign of artificial intelligence and in the name of precision can only serve to exacerbate military operations that are demonstrably discriminatory in their reliance on profiling and indiscriminate in their failures to adhere to international humanitarian law. But before I get started, I, as, as I mentioned, I want to offer uh, a caveat about the title of my talk, because this title actually repeats two figures, neither of which I take as given. So let's start with artificial intelligence. Uh, artificial intelligence has now um, become a, a commonplace uh, for something, um, some thing, um, of great power and inevitability. Much of my work is devoted to trying to demystify the signifier of AI, which I understand as the cover term for a range of technologies and techniques of data processing and analysis based on the adjustment of relevant parameters according to either internally or externally generated feedback. The admission by AI developers that so-called deep learning algorithms evade human understanding is taken by some to suggest the advent of forms of intelligence superior to the human. But an alternative explanation is that these are elaborations of pattern analysis based not on significance or learning in the human sense, but on computationally detectable correlations that, however meaningless, eventually produce results that are again legible to humans. So from training data to the assessment of results, it is humans who inform the input and who evaluate the output of an algorithmic system's operations. And it's humans who must take the responsibility for the cultural assumptions and the political and economic interests on which those operations are based and for the life and death consequences that follow. Which brings us to targeted killing. Critics of this phrase as a term of art in US military operations argue that it should more accurately be called targeted assassination. That killing in this context is a euphemism. 
Now, hard as it is for me to see killing as a euphemism, <laughs> I understand the concern as it flags up the fact that assassination, that is murder without trial for political reasons by US personnel is banned by executive order. Killing then, in the context of contemporary operations, is arguably an evasion of the question of the killing's legality. So I use the word killing here, which seems bad enough to me, but with that caveat in mind. And as we'll see, the term targeted has its own troubling ambiguities. I'm starting here with an indicative image, which is just one among many that I could use as an example. This is a frame from a full motion video taken by a so-called unmanned aerial system from a drone hovering over an area currently being surveilled by the US military. The image accompanies an article in The Guardian last year titled, The Kill Chain Inside the Unit That Tracks Targets for US Drone Wars, which describes the distributed system of drone operators, video analysts, and associated military personnel who look for persons deemed to be threats to the US homeland under the so-called War on Terror. This image is a drone's eye view of a desert area in Yemen, one of the locations named by the US military as areas of active hostilities, along with Somalia and Afghanistan. The box indicates an object which has been automatically identified as a prospective target. One more prefatory note. Uh, in the name of full disclosure. I'm engaged with the issues that I'm going to be talking about today as a US citizen who believes that actions undertaken in my name or in the name of security for the US homeland are actually undermining possibilities for peace around the world. Here's a graph showing relative defense spending for 2018, which makes clear that the United States is the overwhelmingly dominant global military power. The US defense budget, now over $700 billion, exceeds that of the next eight most heavily armed countries in the world com combined, and that includes both China and Russia. The US maintains nearly 800 military bases around the world in 70 countries. And yet in this context, we find the continuation of a discourse of US vulnerability not only in the form of the so-called war on terror, but more recently of a new arms race between the US, China, and Russia centered on the figure of artificial intelligence. So here's where I want to take us in the remainder of my time. I'm going to begin with a brief discussion of what I call following Donald McKenzie, the reinvention of accuracy in algorithmically enabled weapon systems. I then turn to a discussion of situational awareness as a requirement for military operations, the longstanding problem of the fog of war, and accompanying proposals for machine recognition as a technological solution to that problem. I'll propose that situational awareness can be understood following Karen Barad as an apparatus of recognition. These ideas are then thought through the case of remotely controlled and increasingly automated weapon systems underwritten by technologies of data analysis that are animated by and enabling of the current revival of the field of artificial intelligence. I conclude with a reflection on the implications of a critical challenge to algorithmic warfare informed by science and technology studies. So a generative pr precedent for the analysis of contemporary algorithmic warfare is available in critical scholarship on nuclear weapon systems from the 1980s. 
Within the field of STS, Donald McKenzie's groundbreaking book, Inventing Accuracy, published in 1990, offers a meticulous reverse engineering of the technosciences of inertial guidance integral to the US strategic nuclear missile program. Accuracy in the context of the strategic nuclear missile program focused on assuring that a missile fired from thousands of miles away would find its designated mark in the form of an identified military installation. Now, this sounds relatively straightforward, the, the, the distance notwithstanding, but McKenzie's analytic strategy is to document the ineradicable uncertainties and the artifice involved in the construction of evidence through testing for even this kind of missile accuracy. And I'm qualifying it because of the relative lack of an ambiguity in, in what the target um, should be. In the case of long-range missiles, McKenzie's project is effectively to uninvent accuracy as an indisputable fact by showing the rhetorical and material practices of its invention, and in that way, to interrupt the assertions of precision and certainty so central to weapon systems development. He proceeds by showing the heterogeneous engineering of strategic doctrine, social and organizational relations, techniques and technologies that together comprise the apparatuses of nuclear deterrence. Related arguments were mobilized, um, notably by Ted Postel here at MIT, in relation to the Strategic Defense or Star Wars Initiative, Ronald Reagan's proposal for a defensive shield against nuclear attack. Challenges focused on the impossibility of testing under realistic conditions and the difference between assurances that a technological system will act according to its specification, that is system correctness or verification in the case of computationally based systems, and the validity of those specifications in relation to the world in which the system will actually operate. In the case of SDI, plans for launch on warning, that is, uh, and, and that is the automation um, of, of the identification of an incoming missile and the launch of a response. Uh, in that case, the problem of target of identification, particularly uh, in the case of increasingly automated systems, became key. In 1981, I joined a group of researchers at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, mobilized by a message from Severo Ornstein to the distributionless anti-war up arrow, and in 1983, we incorporated as CPSR, or Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility. That same year, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency launched a 10-year companion initiative to the Star Wars um, project, the so-called Strategic Computing Initiative. The centerpiece of the initiative was the goal of providing machines with, in the initiative's phrasing, human-like intelligent capabilities. The application areas promise uh, something for each branch of the armed services. So for the Army, um, the promise was a class of autonomous vehicles, able not only to move around independently, but also, quote, to sense and interpret their environment, plan and reason using sensed and other data, initiate actions to be taken, and communicate with humans and, or other systems, end quote. For the Air Force, the initiative suggests a pilot associ pilot's associate, 
to aid aircraft operators who, quote, are regularly overwhelmed by the quantity of incoming data and communications on which they must base life or death decisions. And then finally, the Navy is to provide it with a battle management system, quote, capable of comprehending uncertain data to produce forecasts of likely events and to provide expert advice on potential courses of action. In the longer term, the Strategic Computing Initiative imagined, quote, completely autonomous land, sea, and air vehicles capable of complex, far-ranging reconnaissance and attack missions. Severo, Brian Cantwell Smith, and I wrote an extended critique of the SCI for the Bulletin of, of the Atomic Scientists. And I would suggest that our critique could easily be recycled with a small amount of updating to address contemporary plans for AI-based military systems some uh, three plus uh, decades later. The problem for which strategic computing is the imagined solution was described in the early 19th, 19th century by Prussian military theorist Karl von Clausewitz and subsequently became known as the fog of war. That phrase gained wider popular recognition as the title of director Errol Morris's documentary about the life and times of former US Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. In the film, McNamara reflects on the chaos of US operations in Vietnam. Those operations made clear that the reliance on a uniformed body that signals the difference between us and them marks the limits of the logics of modern war fighting, as well as of efforts to limit war's injuries. Those efforts are inscribed most prominently in international humanitarian law, a body of customary law developed in the aftermath of World War II as part of the Geneva Conventions. Rule number one of IHL is the principle of distinction, which states that, quote, the parties to the conflict, conflict must at all times distinguish between civilians and combatants. Attacks may only be directed against combatants. Attacks must not be directed against civilians. But of course, the principle of distinction between combatants and those who are out of combat presupposes the warfighter's ability to recognize the difference and to act upon that recognition. This conceptualization binds contemporary approaches to enhancing situational awareness through new technologies to military doctrine based in an ideal of a legible battle space and a fighting force subject to rational decision making and operational control. The legibility of the battle space is a product of what is named in military discourses situational awareness. And the most frequently cited authority is Mika Ensley, former chief scientist of the US Air Force, who in the 1990s developed a model of situational awareness rendered as the familiar perception, decision, action loop. On Ensley's definition, quote, situational awareness is the perception of environmental elements and events with respect to time or space, the comprehension of their meaning, and the projection of their future status, end quote. This model presupposes an objectively and independently existing situation that can be represented as information and for which the accuracy of understanding by either individuals or systems can be measured. So situational awareness is constructed in military discourses as a mode of human cognition involving accurate perception of a surrounding environment. 
that environment includes the potential presence of the enemy, posited as a pre-existing population focused on violent action towards those constituted by the military as friends. The problem for the soldier under this doctrine is to perceive the presence of the enemy, anticipate the threat that they pose, and respond. This focus on an imagined individual engaged in perception of their surrounding environment, whether from a position of command and control or, or immersed in the front lines of combat, is now supplemented by a discourse of the network, which further erases the subjectivities of its constituent persons. But the cognitive, cognitivist and behavioral models that informed the psychology of the individual warfighter persist in strategic figurations of the network as well. Understood in this way, situational awareness then tethers a lineage of rationalist thinking to the aspirational future of algorithmic warfare. Another definition by Major Brad Dostal in an article titled Enhancing Situational Understanding Through the Employment of Unmanned Aerial Vehicles reads that situational awareness is, quote, the ability to maintain a constant clear mental picture of relevant information and the tactical situation, including friendly and threat situations. The reconnaissance, surveillance, and target acquisition elements must provide situational understanding of the operational environment in all of its dimensions, political, cultural, economic, demographic, as well as military factors. Now, it should be immediately apparent that this is an idealized, God's eye view of what situational awareness might comprise. We should note as well that the world is already rendered here as an operational environment, however multidimensional. It's worth recalling that 2001 is the year of the first use of an armed drone by the US military in Afghanistan. And that was a strike that killed a number of people while missing the one person, Taliban leader Mullah Omar, who was its target. So how can we think our way out of the rationalist premises that frame military discourses of situational awareness, particularly with respect to the crucial differentiation friend-enemy? In her book, Meeting the Universe Halfway, physicist and feminist STS scholar Karen Barad has developed the concept of the apparatus to designate the arrangements through which phenomena become ontologically discernible. Different apparatuses, Barad argues, make possible different, always contingent, agential cuts, which are enacted through measurement or other forms of objectification, distinction, manipulation, and the like. Thinking about identification as practices of recognition, Barad observes that, quote, recognizability is not a fixed and universal notion, but obtains its meaning through its ongoing use in specific practices. What is at issue is not mere differential responsiveness, but normative differential responsiveness. Agential cuts enact what Barad conceptualizes as the interiorities within, as she calls it, a phenomena that make difference through the delineation of entity boundaries. Most crucially, Barad's apparatus places the agencies of observation always and inextricably within, rather than outside of or separate from, the phenomenon that the apparatus creates. The apparatus that produces the difference friend-enemy operates within what Judith Butler names the frames of war that delineate the legitimate target along with a field of collateral damage. 
in, in Frames of War, Butler writes, any effort to understand must consider how wars are waged and the technology of war. But to understand the operation of technology, we have to consider how it works on the field of the senses. What is formed and framed through the technological grasp and circulation of the visual and discursive dimensions of war? This grasping and circulation is already an interpretive maneuver, a way of giving an account of whose life is a life and whose life is effectively transformed into an instrument, a target, or a number, or is effaced with only a trace remaining or none at all. Importantly, for apparatuses devoted to the recognition of the imminent threat, Butler also directs our attention to the limits of intelligibility as a kind of methodological strategy that actually provides an opening for change. So in, in a 2002 essay, she writes, so not only is it necessary to isolate and identify the peculiar nexus of power and knowledge that gives rise to the field of intelligible things, but also to track the way in that field, in the ways in which that field meets its breaking point, the moments of its discontinuities, the sites where it fails to constitute the intelligibility for which it stands. What this means is that one looks both for the conditions by which the object field is constituted, but also for the limits of those conditions, the moments where they point up their contingency and their transformability. So with these ideas in mind, I turn to the apparatuses that underpin the recent reinvention of claims for precision and accuracy in the US program of targeted killing. As one case in point, feminist critical security studies scholar, scholar Lauren Wilcox looks at the production of what she calls targetable, killable bodies. In the case of so-called irregular warfare, she arg argues, quote, the construction of certain bodies as threatening is less a matter of what is known about them than the desire to make bodies into what we already know they must be. She works through the well-known case of 23 unarmed villagers traveling together in the Urzgan district of Afghanistan who were killed by US forces in 2010. Her analysis is based on files released by the Department of Defense to the LA Times through a freedom of information request. And this incident has been very widely studied because of the availability of that information. This incident in involves a coincidence of local people traveling in an area that was also the site of confrontations between Taliban fighters and US ground troops, which was part of the reason that these men, women, and children were traveling together in a convoy. Sighted by a surveillance drone operating in the area, they became incorporated into a highly distributed, noisy network committed to the project of positive identification of a threat to the friendly troops on the ground, an apparatus that in this case tragically misrecognized its targets. Wilcox concludes that, quote, greater accuracy of vision is unlikely to serve as a check on the mistakes of either algorithmic or visual analysis when the bodies are already perceived, or rather felt, to be dangerous. In his extensive analysis of the same incident, geographer of militarism Derek Gregory concludes, quote, advocates have made much of the extraordinary ability of the full motion video feeds from predators and reapers to provide persistent surveillance 
the all-seeing eye, so that they become vectors of the phantasmatic desire to produce a fully transparent battle space. Critics, myself included, have insisted that vision is more than a biological instrumental capacity. Seen thus, these feeds interpolate their distant viewers to create an intimacy with ground troops while ensuring that the actions of others within the field of view remain obdurately other. Another widely discussed case was documented in the footage provided by Chelsea Manning and released by WikiLeaks under the title Collateral Damage. And I've written about this incident with my colleagues Carolina Folas and Yuta Weber. Uh, and it's been ex analyzed extensively by Al Jazeera and by the filmmaker Shushan Tan under the title Permission to Engage. The incident occurred in New Baghdad, Iraq in July of 2007 when a series of events led to the killing of civilians, including Reuters cameraman Saeed Shmah, who is pictured just to the left here of the crosshairs. The deaths included a man passing by in a van who subsequently attempted to save Shmah's life after he'd been wounded, um, and the man's small child, who was a passenger in the van. We're seeing a view here through the sights of an Apache helicopter gunship patrolling the area at the time. As the events unfolded, Shema's camera was read as a weapon and the van as a militant rescue effort. And on the, that basis, the gunners were given permission to fire. And again, there were friendly troops on the ground, which deeply informed these readings. The point here is that the actual situations in which weapons are used are fraught with uncertainties. That these give rise to misrecognition on the part of human combatants could be and has been cited as the rationale for the automation of targeting. But if we look carefully at the circumstances surrounding these and many other documented incidents, it becomes clear that however tragically prone to misreadings actual situations of contemporary irregular warfare might be, the premise that they could be specified algorithmically is indefensible. Nonetheless, within the technophilia of US military circles, the dream of a technological solution to the fog of war continues unabated, invested in expanded data gathering and analytics. Figured increasingly under the mystifying trope of a singular and unexplicated AI, these technologies promise to increase the efficiency and accuracy of the process of overlaying schemes of categorization to life on the ground. The ability to accumulate massive amounts of data has been accompanied, however, by the debilitating challenge of rendering data into actionable information. Inspired by the use of, data, of predictive data analytics in the context of finance, marketing, and consumer behavior, a growing number of companies now offer technologies for so-called pattern of life analysis. This image is taken from the website of Aptima, specialist in human-centered engineering. And I think that phrase takes on a very different uh, connotation here, where the human is centered in the crosshairs of a weapon. Um, so they're specialists in human-centered engineering. And this is a promotional video advertising their event detection algorithms. Aptima's event detection builds on a discourse of situational awareness as attunement to anomalous shifts in what comprises, in their words, a normal scenery of places, persons, and activities. Defining activity as motion, rendered as patterns of change over time, 
translates life worlds into phenomena that are nicely tuned to the capacities of data analysis. <coughs> Techniques like this gathered under the acronym of ABI, or activity-based intelligence, are now widely promoted within the DOD and affiliated agencies. In an article in the Journal of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers titled, Activity-Based Intelligence, Understanding the Unknown, Letitia Long, then director of the US National Geospatial Intelligence Agencies, sets out the logics of ABI and argues for its virtues. According to Long, the proverbial needle in a haystack is now a quaint metaphor, applicable in a time when the haystacks were as clearly delineated as the needles, comprising, in Long's words, quote, objects, tanks, planes, airfields, military bases, missile launch facilities, and the like. In a moment when these canonical military objects, um, a, a well-recognized image, I'm sure, in a moment when these canonical military objects are displaced by enemies hiding in plain sight, other methods are necessary. Critical security studies scholar Joseph Pugliese draws on documents released by Edward Snowden regarding the activities of the US National Security Agency to critique the apparatus through which the DOD uses NSA met metadata as a basis for its targeted killing program in, in Pakistan and Yemen. What does it mean, he asks, when former NSA director Michael Hayden states in a debate on the NSA's bulk surveillance programs, quote, we kill people based on metadata. The most widely cited example of how this works is the use of cell phone location as a proxy for the positive identification of a targeted individual. In these cases, as Pugliese observes, quote, the knowledge of the one, that is the cell phone coordinates, is rendered interchangeable with the non-knowledge of the other, that is the person carrying the device. The imminent threat, moreover, no longer requires any actual evidence that an attack on a specific person or interest of the US will take place or is even planned. Simple association of an individual by this apparatus of recognition with a category of targeted persons defined to be a threat is enough. We can get a sense for the limits of these apparatuses in practice in this rendering, and it's, I know it's hard to see, I'll talk you through it, of so-called precision airstrikes carried out by the US and coalition military in Pakistan between the years 2004 and 2015. The visualization graphs 3,341 fatalities from every known drone attack during that period. So you see the frequency of strikes rendered above the midline, and then the counts of persons killed um, below. So we can start by noting the enormous surge in strikes beginning with Obama's pres presidency in 2009. And then if we read uh, the coded band across the top of the image, moving left to right, we travel from a small patch of bright red, um, which is the 190, or 5.7% of the victims who were positively identified as children, and therefore not legitimate targets, to the somewhat larger band of crimson, the 534, or 16% of others killed positively identified as civilians. And then to the right, of these almost 25% of deaths with the official status of collateral damage, is the almost indiscernible white portion of the band indicating the 52 people, 
or 1.6% of those killed who were positively identified as so-called high-profile or high-value targets, that is, that where they actually knew who these people were um, and, and why they were killed. And then finally, we're, we're left with the remainder, which is the, the literal gray zone, of 2,565 people, or 76.7 .7 of those killed, <laughs> categorized simply as other. That is never definitely uh, ascertained as to who they are, they were, or what their status was. Now, this calls into question then statements like this one by Obama's assistant to the president for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism, John Brennan, in 2012, when he stated, "Quote." With the unprecedented ability of remotely piloted aircraft to precisely target a military objective while minimizing collateral damage, one could argue that never before has there been a weapon that allows us to distinguish more effectively between an al-Qaeda terrorist and innocent civilians. And if the timeline were, continue, were to continue, the problem would intensify. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism reports that US counter-terror airstrikes have doubled since Trump's inauguration, targeting particularly Somalia, Yemen, and Afghanistan. In March of 2017, parts of both Somalia and Yemen were declared areas of active hostilities, which then effectively exempted them from the targeting rules that had been brought in by Obama to prevent civilian casualties. At the same time, the level of secrecy around these targeted killing campaigns has increased. Which brings us finally to the most recent turn in the apparatus's elaboration. In April of 2017, the DOD announced plans for its flagship AI project, the Algorithmic Warfare Cross-Functional Team, codenamed Project Maven and captured in this really extraordinary logo. Um, <laughs> under the leadership of Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan. The announcement of Project MAVEN by then Deputy Secretary of Defense Robert Work asserted the urgent need to incorporate, quote, artificial and machine learning across DOD operations, citing increasingly capable adversaries and competitors. Project MAVEN's aim, Work states in this memorandum, is to, quote, turn the enormous volume of data available to the DOD in the form of full motion video into actionable intelligence and insights at speed. The plan as work sets it out includes an initial project focused on the task of labeling data within video images generated by the US drone surveillance operations as a first step towards establishing the algorithms and the computational infrastructures needed to automate obj uh, quotes, object detection, classification, and alerts in support of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance operations. In June of 2018, the DOD launched the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, or JAKE, with the same Lieutenant General Shanahan as its first director. According to Shanahan, the DOD is committed to the use of AI in its weapon systems and, quote, for fiscal year 20, our biggest project will be what we are calling AI for maneuver and fires. Insofar as the infrastructures of surveillance now in place exceed the military's capacity to translate the resulting data into operational intelligence, projects like MAVEN are central to claims for the legitimacy and usefulness of those infrastructures. 
But Maven came under new public scrutiny thanks to a small but significant rebellion on the part of Google employees against the company's participation in the project. As the contract was, was routed through a Northern Virginia technology staffing company called ECS Federal, Google's participation in the project remained quiet until debate on an internal company mailing list was reported in the media in March of 2018. As the wider Google community and the public learned, beginning in late 2017, Google's project Maven contract was aimed at automating the labeling of video images captured on drone cameras as input to Air Force targeting operations. Those of us who joined in support of the insurgent Googlers pointed out that further automation of the scopic regimes of the US drone program can only serve to worsen an operation that, as I've tried to show, is already highly problematic, even arguably illegal and immoral under the laws and norms of armed conflict. In June of 2018, Google announced that it would not renew the contract when it ended in March of this year. In announcing the company's decision, Google Cloud CEO Diane Green asserted that, quote, this contract involved drone video footage and low-res object identification using AI, and saving lives was the overarching intent. The characterization of drone surveillance systems as life-saving by their promoters and defenders persists in spite of their central role in the US's highly contested programs of extrajudicial assassination. The resistance in the tech community was summarized plainly by former chair of Google's parent company, Alphabet, and current chair of the Defense Innovation Board, Eric Schmidt, in a keynote address at the Center for a New American Security's Artificial Intelligence and Global Security Summit in November of 2017. Schmidt cites resistance to Project Maven as, quote, a general concern of somehow the military-industrial complex using their stuff to kill people incorrectly, end quote. Schmidt himself explains the problem of machine learning when applied to what he characterizes as the abnormal, in a quote for which I am deeply appreciative. He says, quote, but the other thing that's worth saying is that these algorithms, at least today, require a great deal of training data. And when I say a great deal, I mean like millions of entries into the matrices, billions of pieces of data. So the classic example, people would say, well, why can't you figure out terrorism? Well, the good news is terrorism is very rare. Thank you, Eric. Right? So it's much, much harder, if you will, to apply AI to that problem whereas trying to understand traffic, right? As an example of something that occurs every day is far, far easier because you have so much training data. These reservations notwithstanding, Schmidt cites Project Maven approvingly as a project that, quote, combines a lot of these very clever systems under a general name, Chanahan. It's very clever, end quote. And while the exact nature of the targets of analysis under development in the pro project remains unclear, because it's highly secret, at least the imaginary of an apparatus for the recognition of a terrorist threat continues to circulate. As one indicative example, Fortune magazine, in an article entitled Three Ways AI is Making You Safer, reports that, quote, Project Maven, the, pro the Pentagon's most high-profile AI initiative, aims to use machine learning algorithms to identify terrorist targets from drone footage, end quote. 
The contract has reportedly now moved to Andrel Industries, whose CEO Palmer Lucky has stated in media interviews that he's hoping that the firm's current virtual reality system, called Lattice, will develop into, quote, an AI-powered sensor fusion platform that helps so soldiers achieve perfect omniscience while in combat. And Shanahan insists that combining the designation of objects with geo-registration of the object's coordinates, quote, is really increasing situational awareness. The discourse surrounding Project MAVEN overwhelmingly begs the question of the criteria by which objects are identified as imminent threats. Just what constitutes the profile of a, quote, ISIS pickup truck, for example? And what were the 38 categories that we know were used by those who hand-labeled 150,000 images to form the initial training data set? Most pressingly, what does this system mean for those who are living under drones, where the presence of what is seen by the US apparatus as abnormal activity might at any point trigger the identification of a threat and attack from weapons operating outside the range of one's own perception. The project demands that we turn our attention to the highly problematic classification systems by which categories like Islamic State militants operating in Iraq, Syria, Somalia, and other areas of US strategic interest are constituted. Even more urgently, it calls on us to question the premise that those categories are pre-existing and stable, and that their members exist independently of the classificatory schemes that identify them and of the latter's violent consequences. Interrogating the Cold War logics of nuclear deterrence, McKenzie effectively opened up for us the black box of weapons targeting and elucidated the contingent accomplishment of accuracy as a fact. In the case of strategic nuclear missiles, Accuracy involves stabilizing mathematical calculations of the trajectory that would be followed by a missile once released from its silo. As the boundaries of war are dissolved and military perceptions become more deeply imbricated with weaponry, it's clear that the elaboration of weaponry, weaponry is characterized not by a corresponding sophistication in military visualities, but rather by ever more reliance on crude classificatory systems of, of profiling and of guilt by association. As long as the accuracy of the weapon is measured by the relation of lethal force to a designated object, the most vital question is left outside of the frame. The claims for precision that justify new investments in automated targeting systems are based on a systematic conflation of the relation between a weapon and its designated target on the one hand and the identification of what constitutes a legitimate target on the other. No amount of improvement in the technologies of the first can address the growing uncertainties of the second. Insisting that they can is part of a campaign to deny the culpability of the US military in increasing reliance on ever more questionable forms of stereotypic categorization of who constitutes a legitimate target and the expanding temporal and spatial boundaries of what comprises an imminent threat. The strategic vagueness of the trope of precision with respect to the grounds for targeting is matched by an associated lack of clarity in what exactly comprises AI. Both underwrite new levels of military technophilia while mystifying the questionable apparatuses of recognition on which those intelligent systems rely and which they further institutionalize. 
Analyses of the use of remotely controlled weapon systems should begin to make clear the further problems inherent in the project of untethering these systems from their human controllers, which military technophiles take as the next logical step in the automation of warfare. The further automation of remotely controlled systems is a, a process that I've been involved in working to interrupt, along with colleagues in a campaign led by Human Rights Watch, Watch focused to date on the UN Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, or CCW, which is a body charged with establishing, quote, prohibitions or restrictions on the use of certain conventional weapons, so non-nuclear weapons, which may be deemed to be excessively injurious or to have indiscriminate effects. So this is the body that considers things like landmines, blinding lasers. Following a report by the UN Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions to the Human Rights Council in 2013, member states agreed to begin discussion on what were then named lethal autonomous weapon systems, that is, systems in which target identification and the initi initiation of attack has been put under fully automated machine control. As a member of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control, which is part of this NGO coalition, I presented testimony at the CCW in April of 2016 in a panel on the question of machine autonomy. In my brief contribution, we had five minutes, I argued that the situational awareness presupposed by the principle of distinction in IHL, basically identifying someone as a combatant or more widely as an imminent threat, cannot be specified algorithmically. Because rules of engagement and the laws of war, like any normative prescript, presuppose capacities of situational awareness that they do not and cannot fully specify, I argued that it's impossible to design an autonomous weapon system that could adhere to the laws of war. So, so as not to leave you in despair, let me try to end with some hope. My hope in this analysis is to contribute to the wider body of scholarship devoted to understanding more deeply how technologies of militarism enroll their subjects and find their objects. I take heart from the crowd pictured here at work responding to Trump's immigration policies, so a slightly different issue, but closely interrelated. Soon after the Maven uprising, Google developed a set of ethics principles that included the pledge, quote, not to participate in the development of weapons or other technologies whose principal purpose or implementation is to cause or directly facilitate injury to people, end quote. While Google continues to be involved in less directly weapons-related DOD infrastructure contracts, the worker movement within the company has been able to mobilize this principle as a resource for opposition. With that said, it's clear to me that we need to engage the problem of US militarism at a much deeper level than techno-ethics can address. The circuits that connect the various apparatuses gathered under the sign of AI are the fantasies of recognition and the practices of dehumanization that have shaped the politics of militarism since the advent of modern warfighting. The promise of algorithmic warfare is a technological solution to the infamous fog of war, taking the speed that automation enables as a proxy for justification of the violence that results. Rather than further accelerate the speed of war, war fighting, I would argue, US citizens need to challenge proclamations of an inevitable AI arms race and redirect our tax dollars to innovations in diplomacy and in social justice that might truly de-escalate the current threats to our collective and planetary security.
Thank you. So I, okay, now we need to, um, you can read the Guardian while. <laughs> Do you want the mic on Stephanie? I don't know. Um. So I think for the podcast, okay. you need to put this on. Undo it. I don't know. It's permanently, <laughs> it's permanently embedded itself in my shirt here, I'm afraid. Yikes. be thinking about your questions while we're <laughs> fiddling with this. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I can also speak like this. Oh, it's, for, it's for the podcast. <laughs> okay. All right. Not for these guys. All right. Okay. Well, um, thank you, Lucy, uh, for that riveting and dispiriting. <laughs> <laughs> and galvanizing talk. And Sherry, thank you for um, your kind introduction and for hosting and organizing this event with uh, your colleague, Deborah Fitzgerald, whom I know can't make it here. And thanks to everybody for coming. I have prepared some comments and some questions that I hope will get us going and discussing the really compelling work that Lucy has presented to us today. This is about a 10-minute spiel. It goes like this. In 1950, Alan Turing wrote, quote, I believe that at the end of the century, the use of words and general educated opinion will have altered so much that one will be able to speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted, unquote. And so, here we are, past the century mark to which Turing pointed, using phrases like artificial intelligence and machine learning two research fields brought together in MIT's new quest for intelligence, and terms which are all over the new in-the-making college of computing, though I suspect that many of us are still distant from believing that machines think in the sense of enacting a cognition animated by self-aware consciousness. And yet, the persistent repetition of the words intelligence and learning invite a misplaced concreteness a fantasy not only that computers may have cognitive autonomy from their programmers, but also that they have achieved escape velocity from the social imperatives that program them, that they have their own evolution, to use a, for, a term favored by today's digerati, one that naturalizes and mystifies the, the development of AI projects. On this view, computers can be brought back into the social fold primarily by designing and using them with ethics in mind. That kind of fuzzy-edged technological determinism, as a number of noted humanists, engineers, and scientists at MIT have long argued, is, with apologies to Turing, worth contradicting. 
literary theorist Leo Marx called this view hazardous. Computer scientist Joseph Weizenbaum, building upon Hannah Arendt in Computer Power and Human Reason in 1976, warned against what he called the imperialism of instrumental reason. And mathematician Norbert Wiener, in The Human Use of Human Beings, worried in 1950 about the lure of technophilic reason for his contemporaries, whom he shorthanded as modern men, <laughs> writing, quote, the modern man, and especially the modern American, however much know-how he may have, has very little know-what. He will accept the superior dexterity of the machine-made decisions without too much inquiry as to the motives and principles behind these, unquote. When such decisions are generated, Wiener wrote, by machines that can adjust over time to feedback and both reproduce existing categories as well as categories of the, their own, quote, the man who is not aware of this will throw the problem of his responsibility on the machine, whether it can learn or not, and cast his responsibility to the winds and find it coming back seated on the whirlwind. I can't help but wonder if this was a kind of sideways reference to Project Whirlwind, a computer system developed by the MIT Servo Mechanisms Lab for the Navy in the late 1940s for military purposes with which Wiener, at that point, wanted nothing to do. The age of algorithms does not, I think, change the basic message here, that we need to continue productively to contradict what Turing predicted as 21st century general educated opinion about machine thinking. Even as, as Sherry Turkle and Lucy Suchman have long argued, we must also attend to transformations in everyday intuitions about self, communication, and society. That in view, what the algorithmic era additionally requires, as Lucy today so expertly alerted us, is that we dig more exactly into the specific problems that AI tools are being created to tackle, in what political, economic, and military settings, and with what effects. So, Algorithmic warfare and the promise of accuracy, with accuracy mistakenly understood as a simple technical and not political quality. Lucy directs us to Donald McKenzie's classic argument in inventing accuracy and adds the crucial feminist insight that accuracy depends upon discerning differences and that when it comes to algorithmic killing, those are social differences or more accurately, and this is an accurate use of the word accurately, <laughs> definitions of social difference. Building upon Lucy's naming of, quote, highly problematic systems of classification, unquote, in enterprises like Project Maven, I recall another classic STS text, Jeff Bowker and Susan Lee Starr's Sorting Things Out, which defines two sorts of classifications, Aristotelian and prototypical, where Aristotelian classification works according to a set of binary characteristics that an object being classified either presents or does not present. Prototypical classification is fuzzier, more of a know-it-when-you-see-it approach. Lucy describes precisely such classification when she speaks of, quote, ever more questionable forms of stereotypic categorization of who constitutes a legitimate target, unquote. The problem with the algorithms Lucy is discussing here, of course, is that even as they purport to work in an iterative, Aristotelian way, is it a person, is it a compatent, is it moving, etc., they are seeded by prototypical judgments about who and what might constitute a target. That, in turn, creates a penumbra of false positives 
that include unarmed civilians, everyday delivery trucks, and more. Lucy observes that military personnel would argue that algorithmic sorting things out means to cut through the fog of war. I would offer instead, and in alliance with Lucy, that what is often created instead is a fog machine. <laughs> so, fog machine learning <laughs> produces phantoms, self-fulfilling prophecies, a database that can generate a hall of mirrors reflecting back to itself its own training data, something like images generated by Google Deep Dream a convolutional neural network computer vision program that trained on specific image databases may begin to generate pattern matches where there are none. One can interrupt such pattern generation to look at what such a network is seeing. Here is a picture of President Trump read by a network trained to recognize dogs. It's kind of funny. Uh, but revelatory of how presets can condition vision, of how so-called machine learning creates an apparatus of recognition that can systematically overinterpret and that and can generate a parallel reality that feeds back on itself. And it need not be so hallucinogenic. Consider the website thispersondoesnotexist.com which some of you may have seen, which generates images of possible people using a generative adversarial network trained on a database of celebrity photos as well as a trove of regular people from um, Flickr. This is all to underline Lucy's point, that it is not the case that there exists some objective pre-existing battle space out in the world, some zone where there are clear and pure enemies that always look and act in essential patterned ways that an AI can be trained reliably and forever to discern without thereby reproducing structures of assumption, bias, or generating new and unexpected patterns that do not correspond with anything real. The logics in these systems are akin to those algorithmic criminal sentencing protocols that assume not only that patterns, like prior criminal record, which say more about a judge than a defendant, can be treated as tokens of predestination, but assume also that the patterns are an objective part of the world. The people of whom Lucy writes do recognize that when they say things like, quote, there's some work behind the scenes that has to be done to first get all of that video cleaned up, unquote. But the promise of cleaning up is no guarantee that anything like accuracy will be thereby achieved. As critical scholars of algorithms, such as reading top to bottom in rows and left to right in columns, Saeed Mustafa Ali, Ruha Benjamin, Joy Bulamwini, Dana Boyd, Wendy Chun, Joan Donovan, Alexander Galloway, Mary Gray, Tarleton Gillespie, Lily Arani, Lisa Nakamura, Sophia Noble, Nick Seaver, Mitali Thakur, Shiva Vyadanathan, and many, many others, including many people in this room, um, have argued there are social and assumptions and investments about race, about personhood, about agency, about reason, wound into every level of the tangled hierarchy that is computational representation. Can ethics be mobilized to manage these ghosts in the machine? Not when ethics is imagined as a simple personal choice not to be evil, nor when ethics is co-opted by companies like Facebook, which purport to police themselves, a cynical move that MIT student Rodrigo Ochigame examines in a forthcoming article on the emergence of ethical AI as a corporate strategy for working around outside regulation, 
nor when ethics is imagined as apart from the social structures of inequality that govern it, as my colleague Susan Silby has argued in an in a issue of the MIT faculty newsletter from last year in her article, How Not to Teach Ethics, which I encourage you to read. Lucy writes that, quote, the language of precision and accuracy is deployed from a moral stance that claims to save life while enabling ever more unaccountable acts of targeted killing, unquote. Just so, the Department of Defense, already a euphemism for what the organization does, just last Thursday released its own AI principles, recommendations on the ethical uses of artificial intelligence by the Department of Defense. Within this frame, Ethical killing, defined as tuning technology to moral clarity, emerges as a possible outcome. Now, I don't disagree that there can be such a thing as ethical killing. Ethics is not a thing, but an argument, and consider the case to be made for medical aid in dying to alleviate terminal suffering. But when ethical killing becomes a mode enacted by a state military that starts from the assumption of clear us's and them's, and from an assumption of a sovereign right to kill, that is to engage in extrajudicial assassination, ethics becomes simple rationalization. As international relations scholar Elke Schwartz, author of Death Machines, suggests in the pages of a recent article in Security Dialogue, quote, if ethics is treated as a primarily technical matter, something to be technologically clarified and administered from an expert space beyond the zone of ethical contestation, then ethics will remain but a cog in our new killing machines." Unquote. So my first question for Lucy, um, and, and, and all of us, I guess, is how, I have three questions, but I'll ask two to start. Um, how can a technocratic depoliticizing capture of ethics not just of AI or algorithms, be interrupted, to use your language. Um, I can start with that one. Okay. Um, maybe I should give up. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Huh? Sure. But then do we carry this along? Okay. Yeah. So. Um, Thank you, Stefan, for that. And I feel as though you have um, taken that slide that I closed with of the Googlers and elaborated it with all of the allies um, that are available to us uh, in STS, critical algorithm studies. Um, you know, there's just a growing, and even going back to sorting things out, which is just such a prescient um, book. Uh, sorting things out, classification and its consequences. I mean, this is so resonant with what's happening now. And, and yeah, so there's this growing body of, of critical scholarship, which is a huge resource. Um, in terms of interrupting the techno-ethics uh, machine, <laughs> um, I, I actually was something of a participant in the Defense Innovation Board um, project to create the set of ethics principles mm. that has just come out, in that I was invited to participate in a roundtable. Um, they held three roundtables. Um, surprise, surprise, one at CMU, um, one did they, was Harvard. one Harvard. at Harvard, and one at Stanford. Uh, and so um, since I live in British Columbia now, most of the time, um, I signed up to come to the one at Stanford. 
Um, I actually discovered that I was expected to just pay for everything out of my own pocket, which I thought was pretty extraordinary, like that 700 billion, you know, couldn't even, which was, and, and that was never mentioned until um, after the fact. Uh, fortunately, I had friends I could stay with. and so, so I went to the round table. There was a public listening session, as they called them beforehand. These are all, the video recordings of these are all on the web. Um, and then there was an invited round table. And what I came away from that feeling was that that was not a place um, where I could effectively mm. interrupt that. Because the, the, the conversation was framed in such a way that all of the things that I think need to inform our thinking about this were, were pushed out of the frame. Mm. Um, the assumption was that the US Department of Defense <clears throat> is the paragon for the world of legal, moral, and ethical behavior. Now, I don't want to say that with complete um, irony. I, I fully believe that, as everywhere, there are people within the Department of Defense who have, a, have integrity, who really care about these things. But I think the historical record and what we see going on shows that, that this needs to be called into question. There was no space um, for that in these conversations. So. I think you know the kind of, of argument, um, you know, this question of what are ethics good for? Because mm. I don't think they're, mm -hmm. you know, as I said, I think I think they can be. The, I think the Google ethics, while I wrote a, a blog post, sort of did a reading of them and and their problems. They're a resource, um, so they they may be uh, valuable, but they're so far from sufficient um, be, because and the entire report that has been released now by the Defense Innovation Board is based on this premise that the problem is how to continue, how to make the United States a model for the, because we have these other authoritarian states who don't have the kind of principles that we have. So how to build on the foundation that the Defense Department has created um, in the new era of, of AI. So I, I guess I think critical work is, is continues to be really important. The quote that I put up of Judith Butler, um, to me, exemplifies the idea of generative critique. I think that that, um, that critique, which opens, um, Sherry, you said in the beginning about sort of showing the gaps between discourses around technology and practices. I think that's a space um, in which we can we can work. And, and so that's, I think, a, a, at least a piece of of, of what we need mm -hmm. to, to do that. I can ask one more question, but I'm very eager to hear from everyone. I, I, uh, I mean, we could move directly to that, or? Is there anyone who'd like to comment on this particular microphone? Yeah. Lucy and Stefan, thank you both for very powerful presentations. I'd like to continue Stefan's question in maybe two registers. One is the School of Computing at MIT, and how do we intervene there? Um, there's a lot that could be said about that. Um, but the other question is the call for critique that, as Stefan so elegantly pointed out, we've been doing for 50 years now. And the arguments have not changed very much. Um, is it time 
to think about public communication in a different kind of way. It seems like a very, I do it myself, so I'm criticizing myself as well. It seems like a very soft, liberal approach to things. Is it the time for a Bertrand Russell tribunal <laughs> to actually lay out the facts to call the countries who contribute to this, of whom the United States, of course, is, as you say, a leading global example, but is surely not the only one. Um, and to, to try to generate in a somewhat more um, uh, contentious way, contentious is not the word I want. It's uh, a good word. Adversary <laughs> way, Adversar yeah. adversarial way, mm -hmm. rather than just being professorial and pointing out all these contradictions. Mm -hmm. Is this the time, or how would we know when the time is? So oh. one thinks, yeah. let me just, yeah. just code it aside <laughs> from Bertrand Russell, one thinks continually about the dystopias that map the United States on the Third Reich. And the question would be, what was the moment in the 1930s, and could people have stopped the machine in a different way? Okay. Well, I mean, I I think for, I want to I want to push back. First of all, you know, of course, I, I completely embrace the urgency um, that you're that you're voicing. I want to push back on the kind of characterization of the critical work as professorial, or it's setting it as apart from um, public engagement, activism. I think those things are inextricably interrelated. And um, you know, I think if we look at the work of Judith Butler, um, you know, it's impossible. You know, she is in, she's both one of the sort of highest theorists that we have, but she's also an incredible public intellectual um, with, with no fear of wading into very, very contentious adversarial kinds of political um, discussions. Um, and I also see my work as a combination. So as part of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control, which is an activist group, um, and at the UN, although you know one of the problems, and I think the tribunal, something that would raise the public profile of this, I think would be incredibly valuable. The United States has no respect for multilateral institutions, the, the United Nations, the International Criminal Court. So it's tricky um, to actually to, to do that, and yet also I think really, really valuable. Um, so I guess my answer is yes, I think more, and, and we have to have these multiple conversations going, informing each other, and if there, and, and and I absolutely agree that we need to up the up the ante here. We're we're at a moment where, um, you know, we're in a crisis. We we know we're in a, a climate crisis, um, and of course militarism is a huge contributor to that. Um, so so we're in a crisis, and then the question is, you know, how do we act? And I think we are acting, um, and I think we need to do more of that. I guess is what I would say. Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a genre of similar question, but it 
is a somewhat different cast. Um, I was interested in the, the work you were doing with Donna Haraway and Karen Barad. And the question I had was, is feminist situated knowledge immune from capture by the discourse of situational awareness, mm -hmm. right? So you write, so does, you write about having, quote, an observer inextricably within rather than outside of or separate from the phenomenon, unquote. And I'm wondering, <laughs> does that itself offer necessarily a better path toward what you uh, compellingly raise as a call to de-escalate the current threats to our collective security? Right, so you offer situated knowledge as a kind of alternative way of thinking about emplacement and objectivity, et cetera. But I'm, I'm curious about, again, whether that itself is also a discourse that might be captured. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, I mean, of course, for me, the idea that situational awareness occupies such a large place in military discourse is, is a really interesting kind of hook um, to, to work with. Um, and so I guess part of what I'm doing here is, is a move away from, it, first of all, sort of showing the tradition within which that discourse within the military um, exists, which is a long, this longstanding sort of dream of omniscience, of perfect transparency, um, of the kind of rational um, operations of, of military, um, military initiatives. Um, so, just as we've, you know, just as feminist theory and, and large, many bodies of scholarship now um, have taken on that kind of ra modernist, rationalist um, set of assumptions, I think those are, those are powerful arguments for, for thinking about um, the way in which situational awareness is framed in the military, the very cognitivist, sort of rationalist way that it's framed. Then the question is, as mm -hmm. you point out, um, articulating alternatives to that. Um, I mean, for me, you know, the, pro the possibility of co-optation is always there. Um, uh, and, you know, I certainly know what it's like to have your work be co-opted in ways that you're not comfortable <laughs> with and that lose the core, mm -hmm. the, the sort of heart of the argument. Um, so, I, so uh, one of the things I think is crucial about the formulation of situated knowledges that comes from Haraway that, that I'm kind of tracing here through, through Barad, but you know, there's so many other uh, people who, who could be cited here, um, is that it, there is no outside that we are profoundly implicated in the, the variously reproducing or transforming the constitution of the worlds um, that we inhabit. We, we're doing that in everything that we do. Um, there's no way out of that. And we are therefore deeply responsible for it. Doesn't mean we control it, but we, we are deeply responsible for it. Um, and partiality, limit, multiplicity are absolutely integral. So you, there is no possibility of omniscience. There is no possibility of any single um, uh, constitution of the real. They, it is necessarily negotiated. Um, and so that, um, is, I think, is a very profound challenge to, to militarism. Um, and I also think that we have to always keep following the ways in which um, ideas get taken up and, 
and reworked. Um, you know, I haven't really found a way yet to engage um, directly with the military. I mean, Sherry, it's interesting you said in the beginning, you know, that I've done these really detailed studies. Well, you know, I'm obviously moving far away from that here because I haven't been able to figure out a way to engage um, that that I can I can live with. Um, uh, yeah. Bring you back to that. Yeah. Because you know one of the one of the sort of um, impossible loops that brings you back and gets this conversation you know kind of trapped is that when you give a presentation, I mean this is something obviously I face. Uh, I, I don't want to say every day because sometimes <laughs> you try to have a day when you don't think. Sure, we can't hear uh, you. I don't want to say I face it every day because sometimes just like you have you try to have a day when you don't think about Donald Trump. Sometimes you try to have a day when you don't think about this death spiral. But you know, you, when you present, well, you're training. You know, you you talk to a student about training AI. Well, you're training the system on mortgages that have been that are historical. So we've got to give mortgages to white faces. Yes, but we need to show it more. Well, but racism is getting worse in America. I mean, it's, a, it's not like there's a dramatic, yeah, but we'll give it more. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. So, that, so that actually, I was going to say, all respect, all respect to the stunning paper that you um, contributed, um, in that discussion that you've got to get at some point, to Michael's point, um, don't you have to go back to cases in order to, to convince people you are not going to ever get a killing machine that's going to kill the right people yeah. if you don't look at the details of how this thing is doing its job. You can't just have this, just, you know, you just got to look, you just got to, yep. so do, yes. don't you feel that the need to combine your virtues um, will grow out of the practical need to convince and be in conversation. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Yes, and, there's, and not I, a, there's not a contradiction there. No. There's almost an imperative based on practicality yeah, yeah. and intellectual on, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I mean, I, I should have said that, you know, I, I have a very di different relationship to computing and computer science. I mean, I've been in conversation with computer scientists all my life and all my life all my working life, um, and very generative conversations, um, at least some of them, <laughs> many of them, you know, dead ends. But, yeah. So, but I also think, you know, what you're pointing to is what I would really, really like, and, and I've, I've made statements like this to audiences of, of people working in AI and computer science, you know, I, I've sort of semi-humorously um, said, you know, what if we had a week-long moratorium on anthropomorphism. So during that week, you would have to re-specify everything that you're doing in technical, in, in technical terms, in non-anthropomorphic terms. Um, and they go, hmm, that's interesting. And, and I, every time I um, come across an articulation of what's going on in AI and machine learning, which is always, you know, 
um, very interesting. And that AI remainder usually is just the floating signifier that gets everyone interested. The machine learning, of course, you know, respecifying that as other than learning. And I tried to do that a little bit at the beginning of my talk in terms of training and, and, and feedback. But to me, that, those are the conversations I want to be in. Like, work, let's work together.